0: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription, in print and online. Plus, a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Kate Andrews. And let me begin at the start by saying we are broadcasting uh, just next to where the postal workers' strike is going on, so a nice bit of uh, background uh, colour for the recording. But today we're discussing the planned proposals by Jeremy Hunt to reform the banking system and the regulations under which the City of London operates. Uh, Kate, talk us through his so-called Edinburgh reforms.
1: The Edinburgh reforms are roughly uh, 30 regulatory reforms. Some is changing these regulations, some is repealing them altogether, And the idea behind them is that they're going to unlock money that would otherwise be spent on regulation and making sure everything's in check, which will hopefully, ideally, create a situation in which more private sector investment can flow into the economy, get things built, get things started, and crucially, get economic growth up. The really big one here is Solvency 2. And I don't want to get too technical. Nobody wants to get too technical about Solvency (laughs) 2. But, you know, it's actually, um, it, it became a bit of a talking point, especially during the Brexit years, because Brexiteers pointed to this, you know, technical point in financial services rules about how much liquidity insurance companies had to have and say, actually, you know, this is eating up a lot of cash. This is the kind of thing we can change once we leave the European Union. And he has announced he is going to repeal it. So the government is taking opportunity to use the phrase Brexit freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're also taking the opportunity to point to some kind of growth agenda. And I spoke to the city minister, Andrew Griffith, this morning, who, you know, was very bullish about this, very excited to be announcing these reforms. And you can tell there's a bit of pep in their step at the moment that there was so much criticism around the autumn statement that you know, there was no real growth agenda in it. This is the first time that I, you can tell they can point to something and be like, we are making real change. We're even doing things that are thought to be a bit controversial so that we can get more economic growth. And it doesn't solve issues around housing and healthcare and other areas where we need efficiency and reform. But it does mean next time people point the finger in the Labour Party and also on the free market right in their own party and say, where's your growth agenda? Arguably, they, they really do have something to point to now.
0: And originally, this was billed as a Big Bang 2.0 by Quasi Quartan when a lot of this kind of stuff was proposed under the Trust government. But it seems that the Sunak government has moved away from some of that kind of rhetoric. Is there a sort of political reason for all this, Kate?
1: Um, I mean, you are hearing the phrase today, but I I think that the focus is instead on Brexit freedoms. And it is a reminder that one of the big ironies of the leadership election over the summer is that Rishi Sunak was actually the Brexit voting MP on the ballot. And he was also the fiscal hawk between the two candidates. And I think that these financial services reforms are exactly the kind of Brexit that he imagines, one in which you can actually do some pretty technical uh, financial things to make real change but also one in which you don't necessarily need to borrow loads of money or spend loads of money to get the benefits of Brexit. And so I think it's a, a, a meaningful indication of, of how he views the world when it comes to Brexit, and the kind of reforms we might see in the future.
0: And that contrast is, of course, a nice way to uh, uh, point out, of course, it's now 45 days since Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister. Liz Truss had already announced her resignation by this point after 44 days. Um so tell us, Katie, how Rishi's management is sort of contrasting with Liz and the sort of contrast and lessons that he's learned from uh, her downfall.
2: Well, he's managed to avoid having to resign um, at the same Big time. Big That's a win. <laughs> so that is one, one difference. Um, I mean, I, th- I think there's a few things. I think to the point about the reforms today, I think that, you know, Rishi didn't came in and actually, I think under-promising might be the wrong word, but... Liz Truss over the summer was promising a lot. And you had Rishi Sunak trying to say, you know, she can't deliver all this. And obviously she went further than she she said in the leadership contest. We all know what happened with the mini budget. And when Rishi Sunak came in, I think it was just such a change of language, which is, you know, you think about Rishi Sunak, but also Jeremy Hunt saying, I'm going to be Scrooge with this autumn statement. It's going to be awful. You've never seen anything as bad as this. And then it was pretty bad. But obviously the point (laughs) was to be, say... But it's maybe not as absolutely awful as she thought it was going to be, and I think now uh, this government, which doesn't want to promise too much, is hoping that announcements such as the one today, but also probably like a trickle of these announcements uh, in the build-up, you know, through the new year up into the spring for the spring budget, um, to show that it's a bit of a growth strategy, and um, because one of the big criticisms was it was just firefighting and dealing with a problem rather than having a plan to bring forward. So I think we can expect a few more things like this in the coming months um, ahead of the spring budget. And then in terms of how Richmond differs to this trust, I mean... The reform today, David Cay things. I mean, it's not something Liz Truss wouldn't do. There, are, there are similarities. I think where they are different is pace and style, and and how much you do at once. And uh, I mean, we have an interview with the Prime Minister coming out next week, uh, where he talks about um, you know some of what drives him. And there is a there is a temptation to say, oh, well, Liz Truss want to be this great disruptor. Whereas Rishi Sunak the complete opposite. But I think that uh, he still wants to do plenty of the things that are radical, but just in a different tone and pace uh, than he would. But uh, probably the biggest difference in terms of why, I mean, why has Rishi Sunak not had to resign after 44 days and this trust had? I mean, how long do we have on this podcast? I mean, you've got the okay. mini budget, but I do think also key to this was parliamentary management. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, the mini-budget and the fallout was a point when it really seemed impossible to get things back. But we saw some warning signs. And I think that you just look at some of the steps Rishi Sudak took in terms of forming a cabinet where he kept some of the Keeler's trust supporters. So, for example, James Cleverly stayed in, foreign, in the Foreign Office. That is a plum job lots of your supporters would want. Um, a few things like that, I think, have just, uh, you know, reaching out, keeping some trust sites there, but also trying to have a very balanced cabinet. And in the junior ministry of too, you can compare and contrast, that's what Liz trusted in her, you know, when she formed her government. And it was something that we covered well at the time, you know, all the people she was going to send to political Siberia. But this all does come back to haunt you. And it means that one of the big criticisms of Rishi Sunak currently faces is that, oh, he's not leading enough. He's giving in to these rebellions. He's finding ways to talk the rebels down. Um, and you can say, oh, that means, look, you're being swept up by events. You're not, you know, you don't have the authority. But it also is just a sign of the fact that, uh, the party is so fractured that the this number time want to go very slowly and soft in terms of trying to mend some of those wounds, rather than getting a situation where you might be able to pass. For example, you know you could have uh, probably defeated uh, the housing rebels plan on mandatory housing targets if you'd gone with the votes of Labour, something Keir Starmer offered to do at Prime Minister's Questions a few weeks ago, but. Had Rishi Sunot done that, what would that have meant for the party? And it probably wouldn't be good for the next few months because you're creating more rifts. So you are seeing a much more, I think, softly and also just based more on party unity than what came before. Obviously, there comes a point where you say, well is that what the country needs in terms of these reforms? But I think that is one of the key differences and why it seems at least for now and for the good of the Christmas special that Rishi (laughs) Suno is likely to be Prime Minister um, well into the new year.
0: A nice little plug there for uh, Katie's force coming into you with with the Prime Minister for now. Um, Kate, one of the things we learned from the fall of the trust government is the importance of market credibility and um, once you've lost it, you have to go much further than otherwise to recover that. What's been the sort of financial reaction and the political reaction to what Jeremy Hunt's announced today. It's been broadly positive, right? It's
1: been broadly positive. Um, and, and that's a point that government wants to emphasize that the uh, regulations that they're uh, adapting and changing and rolling back are very much industry led. Uh, and, and, you know, there hasn't been any kind of substantial change in the markets. You know, it is incredible to think that for the past eight weeks, you really have had to follow um you know the, the guilt yields market and the rest of it by the hour and you know it's a big relief that, that is no longer the case under Rishi Sunak's government that of course is like very baseline we should expect to be able to go into some kind of fiscal statement and not come out having to track the pound by the minute um and 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 so you know it's not like i wouldn't actually say kudos to the Rishi Sunak <laughs> government but given like how how low we fell and how we have to build up from that you know he, sure yes well done Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt on that front katie's absolutely right that that liz truss was, was going to push forward with um, financial services overhaul as well. I think Rishi Sunak's hands have been slightly tied since her government because Things like housing and healthcare, as I said, were going to be politically toxic for both of them. Really difficult to get through without any political capital. Arguably, at at this point in the election cycle, neither of them would have had much. But also, other kinds of growth reforms, Liz Truss has taken off the table for a while. Like, I've never been totally convinced that tax cuts in and of themselves are going to get you to the two point five percent growth that Liz Truss promised. But there are going to be an element. And and Rishi Sunak in the leadership campaign, let's not forget, was actually promising over the course of the next parliament a pretty big tax cut on on the basic rate of income tax. He wanted to take it down to sixteen P and, and not four P off of it. And I think all chat around that has very much been paused. You know, one of the tragedies of Liz Truss's uh, couple weeks in there is that a lot of the good ideas that she might have had for medium term growth have just been taken off the table for, for a while. And that means that Rishi Sinak and Jeremy Hunt have to be even more careful when they come up with a growth agenda. Financial services was something she didn't really get her hands on when she was in Downing Street which made it a little bit more fresh and a bit easier uh, for them to pick up with these Edinburgh reforms. And also look at the language. I mean, they aren't promising that this is going to transform the world. They're not promising that, you know, the economy is going to kickstart and we're all going to be significantly richer. But they are quite rightly pointing out that with the powers that Brexit has given us, these kinds of reforms can actually unlock a lot of money in the private sector. And then if the incentives are there, and, you know, maybe in the future we can talk about whether they are or not, that some of that money can actually make its way um, into infrastructure and investment. And it means that the taxpayer doesn't have to pick up that bill, the private sector will instead. And we will all benefit from that.
0: Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Kate. And thank you for listening today.